Welcome to the Lions Made Podcast, episode 10. Today I'm joined by Coach Dave Gleason, and we talk all things youth soccer training as it happens in the gym. We talked about myths surrounding youth strength and conditioning. We talked about early specialization and all of the stress surrounding that in society. We talked about going outside and playing. We talked about what it takes to create a strong, resilient youth athlete. And he answered a thousand questions for me as I was interested as a former youth player and now as a coach. So I hope you find this as valuable as I do. Let's get started. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to talk about youth training with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Julia. I, I really, really respect you and, and what you're doing. And um, like, I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans. So it's actually, it's an honor for me to talk with you right now. I appreciate you so much because you're one of those people on, on the internet, um, specifically male coaches who like gets behind all the female coaches, you know, especially Erica and I, and you always push up push us up, encourage us, and, uh, and help us shine. We need, we need a big team in order to thrive. So thank you for all your support. Um, well, it's, it's all well-deserved, and I'm just kind of speaking on what I see, and um, you do an amazing job. Thank you so much. Well, I'm thrilled that you're on the podcast today because I think youth training is a really important issue, and I truly can't think of um, anyone better to address that right now than you. So could you please introduce yourself? Who is Dave Gleason? And what do you do? Okay. Well, everybody, I'm uh, Coach Dave, as my kids like to call me. And uh, I own a facility in Boston, Massachusetts, United States. And um, we start with shy six-year-olds and go all the way up to 18-year-old kids. And I say that because we view uh, any, any child that comes in our facility as an athlete. So um, whether they're a team sport athlete or what we would consider a fitness athlete, uh, we just want to help kids be the best version of themselves. Uh, we're in our 10th year right now. I've been in the industry. I'm kind of a dinosaur, if you will. I've been in the industry for over 25 years. <laughs> and uh, I feel like um, the first year I started, you know, working with kids because it's just, it's what I live for. It's why I get up out of bed in the morning. And um, I feel very blessed to be able to serve kids every day. Where was it in your career exactly? I know you've done a little bit of everything, but where was it in your career exactly where you're like, ah, kids, that's what makes the difference for me. What was your turning point? You know, um, let's see, probably when I had my own, to be honest. Okay. Um, being a, a player myself, a soccer player myself, I had always coached kids in camps and camp situations or environments. So I'd always worked with kids and then even early on in my, my fitness career, even if I was working in kind of a large multi-purpose health club, I always found my way somehow to start working w with kids, um, especially kids under the age of 13. But once I had my own kids and I was fortunate enough to be able to coach them as well, um, it dawned on me around the year 2000, like, I need to be doing this like all the time. Mm -hmm. And kind of forget about working with adults even though that can be very lucrative I needed to go where my heart and passion lies and I knew at that point it, it was with kids mm. and it still is I love that and you've been at it you said 10 years now with your facility right yeah we opened up actually this October will be the 10-year anniversary for my facility amazing 
how different do you feel like you are from when you first started? Oh man, um, that's a good question. Julia, I'll just say this, I'm still learning. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm literally still learning. Um, you know, I'm still studying like, like crazy. I'm, I'm re I'm recertifying myself in certifications that I already have just to like go through the entire course again. I feel like, um, as much as I, I feel like I know more now, I feel like there's so much more to learn. So I've changed a lot in terms of from when I began, I think in terms of my directness, if you will, mm -hmm. with parents, especially because um, I used to be afraid of that as a younger coach. And fortunately or unfortunately, whatever way you want to look at it, I think the kids that we train deserve us to really tell parents the straight and narrow, like what, what is up, like what the science says, what's right and wrong, and, and explain to them in the best possible way how what they did growing up might not be the best thing for their their child today mm -hmm. um, I used to really shy away from that so I would think I think to directly answer your question the way that I've changed the most is in that regard um, outside of just continually you know educating myself as much as I maybe thought I knew years ago I realized now I really didn't know much of anything but that's an amazing start to where we're going to go so today we're going to address some of the the myths and the concepts that are kind of left behind in youth training and do kind of an update uh, episode. So let's talk about that with the parents mm. and how things used to be in the 80s. What are some of the things you can update us on? What has changed since the 80s? How do we change? How do we train in soccer hmm. differently? Yeah, well, let me put it in a context this way. Um, I have to say it's kind of like a youth sports continuum that I came up with a few years ago. And, you know, when I grew up, everyone played something um you know so there were your team sport athletes and then there were your kids that might be individual sport athletes but even your kids that were involved in the arts or music or anything else still were very active outside and they would at least play something at the recreational level and um, it, it's just the landscape has changed so much where, you know, now we've segmented all these kids where the, what we call fitness athletes, they don't really have a place. So you're either a competitive team sport athlete or a competitive individual athlete, or you don't really have a place in the whole continuum and in, in, in environment that youth sports is today, because in the States, it has changed so much. It's so hyper competitive. Oh, yeah. um, and, and because of that, we now have, um, a and I'm still working this out in my head, Julia, whether the kids have changed because of their environment. So they've adapted to that or if they're the same kids just living in a different environment. I don't know how exactly I'm, I, I'm framing that yet, but I do know the environment is different. The atmosphere is different. The intensity is much different. So the things that we did when we were younger don't necessarily apply today, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like the classic psychology nature versus nurture argument. Is it this sure. or is it that? It's probably both. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, so competitiveness, that makes sense. But strength and conditioning also wasn't so in or as accessible in the 80s and 90s. I mean, when I was a youth, I didn't touch a barbell until my junior year of high school, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I think, I mean, there's high school strength coaches in in most cases or in good school districts. And so they're on-ramping kids with eighth grade. I mean, right as kids are Mm -hmm. starting to get recruited to schools, that's a big Mm -hmm. difference. It is. And this all, you know, this points back to what I just referenced in terms of the way that children by and large grew up, at least when I did, we were so physical with roughhousing and climbing and crawling and riding bicycles, which, which required, you know, the, the quote unquote core strength that all parents want their kids to have today, all these different things that we did physically that were difficult that were very difficult. Now we're, we're faced with the charge of, you know, you had mentioned it. We start with our middle schoolers. We're teaching them how to Olympic lift. Yeah. We're teaching them how to get weight off of a floor and, and onto their shoulders in a safe way because they never had that trial and error growing up. Mm-hmm. They never moved rocks or they never like moved a log because it was in the way of them riding their bike through the woods. There was just, uh, and I could come up with so many examples, but the inception of strength training, formalized strength training, I almost hate to say it, it's a necessity these days. Yes. Because of the lack of physical activity in the type of physical activity kids are, are getting or not getting. I was just talking about this with Erica, believe it or not. Um, how mo- yeah, most, most kids that I see these days, new athletes, are deconditioned and malnourished Mm -hmm. and that's just the ugly truth of and these are club level players some of them this isn't just a kid that's coming in because they need exercise this is a kid that's trying to make a higher level club team or maybe their high school varsity team that is completely deconditioned they have no base of strength no foundation of coordination so it's literally starting from scratch with a lot of these kids absolutely yeah, coordination is on the bottom of our chart, obviously. Um, that's basically mm-hmm. the, found, the foundation of what we do, believe it or not, is not core strength people, <laughs> which can't be achieved right. through a plank position. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's actually the coordination which all of us learned because we were all outside all the time because our parents didn't want us in the house or multi-sport athletes with the whole body coordination. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's so interesting that you say that about um, high school kids, because I even have adult athletes, like, um, first and second league athletes that come in for rehab or whatever, and they don't know how to move. They don't know, they don't Mm -hmm. have proprioception. They don't have coordination. Mm -hmm. And that, that is somehow just missing from, from training, from development. And that, yeah, like you said, SNC becomes a necessity because that would be completely missing otherwise, or the chance to learn that would be missing otherwise. Absolutely. I, I see the same exact thing on with the bookend of the younger age group. They, they're lacking even the ability to cross their midline and know yes. where their hand and arm is in space. It's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But they've got great, you know, footwork on, a, on top of a ball. They're magic. Mm-hmm. Right? Technical and tactical. Because they have, right? right, because they have four, you know, training sessions, skill sessions a week, but they can't, they can't run so backwards. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it is. You know, in many ways, 
because I, you know, I've been in the industry long enough. I, I sometimes I, I, I have those fleeting moments of thinking I, for the younger age groups, I shouldn't even exist. Yeah. You know, so. they should get to me at a point where, okay, now we can really do something special. Right. But it's, it's baseline stuff. And I'm so glad you referenced coordination. That is at the bottom of our pyramid as well. We spend the majority of our time working on some element of coordination and usually it's three or four elements every single session. And what does that look like when you do that? Can you give us an example? Sure. Um, you know, for our six to eight year olds, it looks a lot, it looks like a, uh, what PE used to look like in, mm -hmm. in the United States, but it's, uh, a lot of it is contralateral coordination, just having them skip and crawl, bear crawl, crab walk, side shuffle, um, we do a lot with object manipulation. We'll do some reactivity, some balance, both dynamic um, and static. You know, we'll do ambulatory balance. So we'll have them hop and then try to stick a landing on one leg. And can you hold that? We'll do something called scramble the balance where they start out on their belly. Mm -hmm. When we give them a cue, they stand up as quickly as possible and stand on one leg. So it's extremely fast movement to mm -hmm. being static. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, there's a million different things we can talk about, but we do a lot as well, all the way through age 13 and then even above, but especially 13 and under with kinesthetic differentiation. So like um, for the listeners, that's a fancy way of saying um, if I had a basketball in my hand and I'm trying to get it in the basketball hoop in a, in a fraction of a second, my brain brainstem my central nervous system figuring out how much force to put behind that basketball to get it to reach the basket to go in so we'll do things like instead of doing a broad jump we'll have them broad jump to a line without going over it so basically because exercising all those physics equations your brain's supposed to do automatically but never learned exactly again all the things that we had to do when we were playing tag as kids in the backyard and if you didn't make a cut at the right spot you were gonna like hit the brick wall you're gonna head off yeah you're gonna hit the brick wall or go into the woods or get tagged yeah funny how that works and for for um the athletes listening contralateral stuff is also a big part of what we do and that is opposite hand opposite foot and that's why a lot mm -hmm. of you when you come in and work with um when you work with me or you have a white line program and you have to do bear crawls or a skips or um, pop skips or things like that. That's why it's so awkward to get your opposite sides to work together like that. Um, because it's just coordination and everybody has different mm. struggles with coordination and we could all use tune ups and whatever, but that's the basics and that needs to be constantly nailed in. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So let's go into early specialization. Can you define early specialization for us? Tell us a little bit about the debate, um, which is crazy. Mm. And then, <laughs> and then we'll dive crazy that it. there is a debate, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So in a nutshell, early specialization is a young child, and I'll just start at age six, because the United States, most organized youth sports start at about age six, kindergarten, first grade, um, where they're playing just one single sport, and, and that is it. And that's also started to become their only form of exercise at all so if they're not at practice they're on the couch or they're on their iphone or 
their Xbox or doing homework or whatever else they do. As and, kids. and I'll add, it's but not only certain... their only physical activity, it's also their only social activity outside of mandatory school oh, and social media. So glad that you said that. Yeah, so in a nutshell, that's early specialization, which, you know, the research and white papers on, on how detrimental that is to a child are so expansive, we can't even begin to talk about it. But in a way, I understand, especially when this fear-based marketing through soccer clubs and coaches and so forth and so on, how an unknowing parent or even coach would think, well, if you want to get really good at something, then you practice that one thing. The issue is, I'll just say it this way, because this is a myth. Early specialization does not make it for a better player. A better athlete makes for a better player. So we have to start with the human being as a whole, both mentally and physically, and making sure that they develop and then they can become potentially any, any kind of player that they want to be. Which is a huge so, difference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, because so when we look at the, the, those four columns, right? Again, technical, tactical, physical, and mental. And we get it so ass backwards mm-hmm. and say, hey, let's start developing this technical, tactical player. And then they're not athletic mm-hmm. or they're not mentally tough. Mm-hmm. They're not mentally strong. They don't have that concentration. They don't have... They have issues with stress, mm-hmm. et cetera, because those things were never developed through having multiple sports mm-hmm. that challenge your whole body, things you're not good right. at, having to learn all kinds of different skills, having all kinds of social interactions. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty detrimental. But yeah, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. The psychosocial thing always. No, it, it, <laughs> no, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. You do such a great job with the, the mental side of the game and the psychology that is involved with athletes as any other human being um, because there's so much at stake at such a young age for these kids. And now what I'm seeing, I mean, this is just from being in the trenches. This isn't looking at it from afar. This is what I see every single day. Kids are hitting a brick wall. They're not just plateauing where in years past, I would see kids start to plateau and we'd be lucky enough to get them in our facility and help them get through that plateau. And then they could ascend sort of through the the soccer ranks, if you will, Mm -hmm. to wherever they, you know, top out. But now I'm seeing children at a younger, younger, younger age hit a brick wall in terms of their development, not just physically and mentally, but as a soccer player. Yeah. They are, uh, you know, we have these club soccer players that have specialized early. I just had another one. Um, that did not make his first year high school team that's been playing club soccer and only club soccer since the age of six. Now he's 14 and he's, he's devastated, devastated. I bet. So I worry about him physically. There's that side of it. And of course you want him to be able to continue, but I'm worried about him from a psychological standpoint and socially that's his soul, his entire social framework is soccer and he's defined himself and identifies as being a soccer player and it's really hard to change your identity when you're a teenager yeah you know and that's you know we had spoken a little bit before we started this call on myths yeah that's one of the myths i try to displace with parents even if they don't necessarily mean to say it you know because they'll come into my facility and say oh here's you know 
my daughter, Julia, she's a soccer player. I'm like, she's not a soccer player. She's a 10-year-old. Yeah. So we're very, we're also very careful when we have a new athlete to ask them what they do. We don't ask them what they play. Mm-hmm. And that's a big differentiator if there's coaches listening to this. Ask them what they do. Of course, they're going to, you know, in my environment or sports performance facility, they're going to start with their sport or sports. Mm-hmm. But right away, my coaches are trained and I will ask, well, yeah, that's great. But what else do you like to do? Like, are you in the art? Are you, are you, you know, you're playing instrument. Oh, no, I'm in chorus. I love to sing. Oh, that's really cool. Tell me more about that. We yeah. need to spend more time, in my opinion, talking to them as human beings, not little assets for a club team. Yeah. Wow. Love that. And that's just being like a little bit to the point, but I get very, very passionate about this because again, it's, it's, I'm seeing this every single day. I'm the one that's dealing with children, even parents crying in my office because they felt that the kids feel like their life is over at 12 years old. If they don't make the, you know, the top team on their club or, you know, this boy who's a great kid who didn't make his first level high school team. Yeah. Was he trying to play varsity or what? Yeah. No, this was just the, he goes to a private school. So it's a little okay. bit more competitive. Okay. Um, so there was cut, there was cuts for the freshman team. Aww. And uh, it's just like my heart, like it just, it literally breaks my heart. Cause he's a great kid. He was, came in for the off season and he worked so hard. He stacked the cards in his favor, but there was something the coach didn't like and they had an overabundance of kids. So they decided to make cuts this year and he's on the outside looking in. There's just so many things we can't control. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's just so many yeah. things and just preparing for the best and also for the worst Ab- sometimes. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. Um, I just tweeted about this and what we say to our athletes when they're about to get in, like it might be a big tournament or they have a big game coming up, but what we're trying to talk to them about, and this will relate to what we're, we're talking about is we'll say to them, play from, play from the inside out, Mm -hmm. like play for the joy of the game, play for the joy of being with your girlfriends or, your guy friends that like you've grown up with or you've been with for the last few years training um, play because you love it. And I really think it's important that we remind kids of that mm-hmm. um, because um, there's an organization called changing the game project, John uh, Sullivan. And I got this from him, but it, what's happening is it's, it becomes not playing soccer, but working soccer. Exactly. And when, when that happens, there also happens the downward spiral. And, you know, I, I'm sure, I know you read a lot of research too. Um, I stopped reading after, you know, on average, I found out that by age 13, 70 to 75% of all kids in the United States are dropping out of youth sports. Yeah. That's 75 out of a hundred children that are not engaged in anything productive after school. That's Sickening. a societal issue. It's yeah. a societal issue. What are these kids doing? And, and as you know, like even the best kids make bad decisions and kids that don't have anything to do will find something to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we also know from the research, for example, that a lot of kids struggle with the pressure, for, pressure from parents. I mean, that's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why I think it's, it is. we talked about this before the episode, but parents are really, really hard for us as coaches to deal with because everybody thinks their kid mm-hmm. is special and they are because they're mm-hmm. your kid, but that doesn't mean they're a national yeah. team level athlete with the age of 14 mm-hmm. or 12. I know you get it even earlier than that. Um, yeah. They're yeah. not going to make the Olympics at, at, tw- at 21, you know, it's, it's just not likely. Um, and it's just, it's so hard to tell. It's so hard to tell what an eight-year-old is going to be when they're 14, let alone 20. Yeah. And, and you, it's, it's just so difficult. I try to use stories with parents as, as much as possible. And so I'll use this story. It might help someone that's listening. So when my son was born, his cousin was born like a, a, a month ahead of him. And so we'd get them together all the time. And it was my first like real look at overall like just human development. And I remember thinking, well, this is weird that Joseph is like so far ahead physically than Trevor is they're only a month apart. And then it would be like, oh, why is Trevor speaking before Joseph does? He's younger. Like, and it would just go back and forth and back and forth. And A, you can't rush development and B, you just, you just kind of have to let it happen and, and allow them to be the best versions of themselves at whatever stage of development they're in. One of the things that I use all the time with coaches and parents is, and even coaches that I consult with that are working with younger kids, it's very important that we meet them where they are. Yes. Rather than trying to meet them where we think they should be. Yeah. Right. Because they already have these expectations laid upon them that are not necessarily their own, as you alluded to, mm-hmm. with their parents, especially. So it's like they need some voice that is, is going to be there with them, not necessarily for them, but with them and meet them where they are. Totally. And my job as a, a coach psychologist is to sit back with the kids and be like, you are fine and you are cool and you're special however you are. You don't have to be an Olympic mm-hmm. level soccer player. You don't ever have to play in a mm-hmm. World Cup. You don't have to get a D1 mm-hmm. scholarship. Your worth, yeah. doesn't, your worth doesn't hang. From, I know they're all sick of my shit saying this over and over again, but your worth doesn't hang from your performance. That's not your identifier. Mm-hmm. But the more that we say it to them, the, the sooner they'll start to believe it because there are sure a whole lot of people, coaches, parents out there saying, no, this is why you matter. And that just makes me a- sick. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And you know how kids are. They might like roll their eyes or be like, oh yeah, whatever. They internalize that so fast. Them. Oh yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the best things that I've ever said to my oldest, who is a college soccer player now, um, going into his senior year, I just felt it. So I said it and I just said to him, Trevor, you could quit tomorrow and I won't love you any less. Yeah. And it, it was because it was that he was going into his senior year, the height of recruiting, stress, trying to figure out what kind of school do I want to go to? What kind of a system do I fit into? Do I want division one, two or three? Like all the stress involved with that. That was probably one of the best conversations I've ever had with him, to be honest with you. Um, and for him to look at me and say, you know what, I you don't know how much I appreciate that. Because even doing what I do for a living, I can get ahead of myself. Oh, yeah. Right? And I can start to lay expectations on my own kids. 
So no one's infallible from, from that. We just have to do the best that we can as, as parents and coaches to make sure we're putting their needs first. Yeah. Yeah. Just like we always say, take care of the athlete before, or take care of the human before you take care of the athlete, take care of the athlete before you take care of the soccer player or whatever sport it is. Mm -hmm. It's also the Mm -hmm. same when we talk about the worth. Mm -hmm. You could quit tomorrow and I wouldn't love you any less, or you can play tomorrow and I wouldn't love you any less. Like the basis for this is your humanity, then the rest Mm -hmm. on top of that. Yeah. So let's rock with strength training for kids. Now, one of the most annoying things that still goes on in this industry, I'm not really sure why, is the concept that young kids can't lift weights. Um, Mm -hmm. That's frustrating because um, the research over the last decade has very clearly pointed to, yes, youth athletes can absolutely lift weights. Um, And when we think about weights um, or weight training, strength training versus what they do every day, kicking soccer balls, running, which is a lateral activity with up to six times their body weight on one leg, et cetera. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about the stand of the research and how you approach youth strength and conditioning? Yeah, I think the best thing to do is to talk about examples. You just gave one really good example. The other thing, you know, example I'll give you is like we would do a lot of jumping and landing for our younger kids because for their legs, that is strength training. Yeah. Right. Um, Crawling. Yeah, crawling is strength training. I mean, the, the eccentric forces are the ability to slow down the force when you're falling to the earth. You know, it's yeah. so many times your body weight, depending on the height you're landing on. And I, I can, I just had a flashback to like literally jumping out of a tree <laughs> yeah. that I was climbing. Like the forces the, that I needed so that I wouldn't get hurt um, doing that and you know i go back to again like lifting logs and rocks or climbing that was strength training for us at a very very young age so the notion that putting a 20 pound dumbbell in a 12 year old's hand to do a bent over row could be detrimental is ludicrous to me yeah especially under a watchful eye because when i grew up there was no watch watchful eye and I'm not talking about lifting weights you know in the basement with dad's weights I'm talking about the things we did outside yeah just in general just to play what we wanted to play move things or set set things up build forts or like whatever we were doing it was so physical um talking about research this is an interesting thing I just got from Lee Taft who I think you know he's been reading research that illustrates there's actually a connection between strength training and growing. So there used to be this myth that, oh, it'll stunt their growth. Well, actually, the opposite is true. And that's what they're starting to research more and more at major universities here is how it'll actually promote bone growth in terms of length. So fascinating. That's fantastic news. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's it's just frustrating because um, sometimes – the science what's fact just gets ignored you know so again i think it's really important for coaches that are listening to use as many stories as you can so that parents can connect the dots and you can connect the dots with your athletes so that they understand it's not only safe but it's one of the most beneficial things that you can do yeah if it's done right i should say 
yeah, that's what we're there for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think in, in any industry, we could talk about medical doctors, there's always going to be practitioners that are not doing the right thing yeah. by the people they serve. So to point out those few instances and say that it's, we're just going to wipe the board clean and say it's not good for any children at all is, is not the right thing to do at all. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, in German soccer, a lot of times what I'll hear is, well, we've always done it this way. Or when I mm -hmm. was young, the research said blah, blah, blah. And somehow that's considered a viable argument. <laughs> now, mm -hmm. that's so fascinating to me because when, when do we look at, and I work in research, so when do we look at research really ever and say, well, the research said 20 years ago this, so we're going to stick to that mm -hmm. instead of the thousands of articles that have come out between 2005 and 2019. And you just think like, why yeah. would that be different? Especially when it's, you know, at the risk of performance or jeopardizing mm -hmm. kids, like the most vulnerable population, the ones that need every square inch of, of you know, work and mm -hmm. effort to succeed. <laughs> like, it's amazing. That's a great point because it is, it's at the expense of the kids. You would think we would want to, utilize in the latest research like the the most current thing we have and also like you also said this look at the whole body of evidence and look at everything changes i can remember a time when in the united states it was considered like taboo to eat carrots because they had a high glycemic count yeah right, right. because research showed that like you know it's going to increase your insulin levels so people thought they were getting fat eating fruits and vegetables and it's like you know research it's also how it's interpreted but it's the more that's research research it, more the more research is done the more we can shape what we do practically exactly. the other thing people need to realize is much if not most of the research that done that's done is done to figure out what practitioners like yourself and, and other people that I respect are actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Because they catch hold of it and they're like, wow, why is this working so well? What's the efficacy here? And is it really true? Is it really making a change, you know, at a cellular level or whatever they want to, to study? The only difference now is it's really difficult to keep up with the amount of research being done. 20 Absolutely. years ago, it was, it was pretty easy. Yeah, when you've got people like Feigenbaum out here and <laughs> you know, put, right. you know, puts out 100 articles every year, it seems like. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So just to get a little bit more practical for the athletes who are listening or even the coaches, mm -hmm. what can an athlete who's under 12, let's say, um, who just plays soccer, what can they do mm -hmm. to make themselves a better athlete? What can they start implementing right now? What do they need to look for? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. So I'm going to give you a loaded answer. Let's go. <laughs> I would, well, I would say two things and I'll just try to keep it simple. If I was to talk to this, this athlete and their parents, it would be one as painful as it might seem, try another sport, just mm -hmm. try something else knowing it's going to make you a better athlete, which in turn is going to make you a better player, which is your end goal. Yeah. Um, the second thing is, um, in the absence of doing it on their own, which we know kids by and large are not, 
they they really need to get into a program and I, I almost I almost hate saying this because like I said before under the age of 12 I almost feel like we shouldn't exist but it is right. what it is they need to get into a program with a qualified professional that knows human development and how that relates to exercise physiology and and programming for young kids so that it's not just a watered down elite athlete or adult program to really a help them catch up to where they should be from a coordination standpoint and a foundational standpoint, and then potentially, you know, increase their athleticism so they can succeed on the field more. Absolutely. And I want to nail home exactly what you just said for anybody who's listening, coach, athlete, parent, something else. I don't care. Kids programs, youth programming is not a watered down adult program. It's not a watered down elite program. It's not Cristiano Ronaldo's program with less reps. It's a program mm-hmm. that is built for a child of a specific age um, in a specific sport, in a specific time frame, with a purpose, um, with someone who understands human development. Kids can't always train exactly like adults. They're not supposed to. They're not adults. Okay, sorry. That was great that you said that. I just really wanted to highlight that because I feel like... Well, I, lo- I love that you anchored that point. I mean, that's, all, that's an entire podcast in itself right Absolutely. There. Yeah, I just, the the amount of things that I see on social media of kids doing programs that I would struggle to let most of my 18-year-olds do, um, most of my incoming mm-hmm. college freshmen do, is like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, first, half the population doesn't want these kids to train at all. They want them to just play mm-hmm. soccer. And then the people who do let their kids train want them to do Messi's strength training program. Like, what? Right. I know. <laughs> How is that appropriate? Um, so let's talk about a youth athlete who's under 15. So this is when, unfortunately in America, the thoughts of recruiting starts depending on the level. Mm -hmm. Um, we're starting Mm -hmm. to plan for college. We're starting to plan for wanting to play varsity in college or whatever the, Mm -hmm. um, what's it called? Is it platinum league in the States? Premier league? Um, gold league? Yeah, we have now uh, that's another podcast. (laughs) We have so we have it just keeps adding we keep adding to it because like this league isn't good enough so let's just make another one that looks like it's better always right it used to it used to be just real i mean it used to be not too long ago if you were a club player period it was a big deal yeah and now it's like literally you'll have three or four different level teams for any given age group um and they'll play you know in any one of however many leagues I just found out that there's I think there's four or five different national championships a U14 boys team can play for jeez what yeah like why yeah exactly right anyway yeah when I was playing Um, we had three levels we had like rec obviously we're going nowhere travel and then classic mm -hmm. and classic was like the premier league the top league whatever Mm -hmm. and we had regionals and the nationals or yeah state regionals and nationals and that was it (laughs) like it was that basic it's crazy yeah yeah so let's talk about that under under 15 player what can that player be doing um what do they need to focus on um if their goal is to play at a higher level it's at this point i'm going to say it's mandatory they seek out a qualified strength and conditioning professional that again knows how to program for a 13 14 or 15 year old they're not going to be delivering, you know, a college level strength and conditioning program to that child. That 15 year old is still a child. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that 14 year old is still, I mean, that's such a, and you see it all the time. That's such a critical age because they've just gone through growth spurts. If they're not ready to go through another one, they're changing hormonally, biologically, everything is turned upside down. It's critical, critical that they have someone on their team that knows what they're doing. The good news is if you seek it out, it's there, whether it's remotely, you know, someone like Erica Suter or uh, who does a fantastic job remotely as well as in person or in the United States. Now there, there's a lot of really qualified people out there, but I think parents and coaches need to know how to ask the right questions to these potential strength coaches as well. And what are the right questions? Um, one of the first questions that should be asked because it doesn't really matter what's on their social media, media handles or on their website is you know, how many athletes this age do you train right now? Yeah. How many athletes in this age group do you coach? Because unfortunately it's, it's a business as well. Not unfortunately, I mean, it's a business. Um, it, you know, a lot of people try to be a jack of all trades and say that they specialize in kids. You either do or you don't. Yeah. So, um, how many kids do you train at that age now? How many have you in the past and at what level? That's one of the, you know, the most important things, of course, the, ed- the education piece has to be asked. Like, what is your education? What's your formal education? as well as your experiential education. Like, what have you found has been difficult for this age? What kinds of things do you do? Um, those are probably the two most important things that I would ask, and that's coming from me as a parent. Yeah, I think those are great questions because that'll take out a lot of um, posers and people mm-hmm. who train adults and would give you that watered-down elite athlete program. Right. Oh, I train 13 year olds. Sure. Really? How many do you train? Well, right now, um, none, <laughs> you know, um, and, how many have you, you know, trained in the last question. year? Uh, none. Right. <laughs> right. Another question that is kind of comes off of a question that I asked potential candidates for employment with me is if you were to pick one age group, what would be your favorite age group and why? Yeah. Nice. Um, of course, most are going to say what? Well, I want to train elite athletes, you know, college, pro level. And, but we'll, you know, you have to, you kind of have to gauge the person you're talking to and see what they say. If they give you an honest answer, you know, you want to think about how much attention and care are you going to give my 14 year old? If you just told me that, like, really your bread and butter is college athletes. It's yeah. fine. It's not a good fit for us. Yeah. Let you know what you're working with in advance so you're not wasting time and money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you put it the right way. There's a lot of posers out there. Yeah, it's hard. Social media makes things a lot more complicated. Um, I mean, yeah, social media is also amazing, but it sure does make things complicated. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Coach, thank you so incredibly much for being on the podcast. Can you tell the people where to find you? And I will put all those links in the description. Oh, cool. This was so fun to talk to you. I need to do it more, I think. Absolutely. Um, So I I think the best place to find me is probably on Twitter. It's at youth fitness is my Twitter handle. Best Um, handle ever. I'm also, 
<laughs> yeah, I got lucky with that one. That that shows my age. I was able to get that handle. No one else had it already. Uh, um, and then uh, I post quite a bit on social media. The one for my gym is uh, it's at AX South Shore. And okay. then my personal one, which is a lot of the same postings, it's um, it's Coach Dave Gleason. And he is great. He posts a lot of great. I love your IGTVs especially, but you post a lot of great information both on Twitter and also on your Instagrams. So I definitely recommend uh, following him, whether you're a coach thank or you. you're an athlete, doesn't matter. That means a lot. You know, we talked quite a bit about myths and misinformation, and that's really one of the biggest reasons why I do it. I just want people to be in the know so they can make informed decisions on the truth. Well, I think that you're one of the genuine, most genuine people. You and Erica are two of the most genuine people that I know. And the way that you guys use social media to the advantage of your athletes and not to the advantage necessarily of making more money off your athletes is excellent. Mm -hmm. um, I respect that a lot. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. All right. Well, you'll definitely be back if you've got time because we have so much more to discuss. So guys, please go follow Coach Dave. And Dave, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. You too, Julia. Thanks so much.